I'll be back Always room for delays for real life and delicious invertebrates. Hello and welcome to I Thought They Smelled Bad on the Outside, a show that doesn't have a tagline this week. I'm not feeling creative. I just survived a 15-hour shift. My legs hurt. And I've got a couple of friendly people on the line with me for this show. Feel free to introduce yourselves. Hello, I am Becky Cunningham. I know Mr. Walker through rpgamer.com and also my friendship with his significant other. <laughs> and I am Sam the Telustus, one of the co-hosts of the Way of the Game podcast. And uh, I know Mr. Foul Sorceress over here through uh, Backseat Producers by Tony Mast. Yes, and yeah, segue... Segway, uh, my pick of the week is going to my new show, going to be dropping every Tuesday on BackseatProducers.com. It's called Backseat Quickies. I'm going to be ruining movies really fast. That's pretty much all I got. Excellent. I like Sexy. it. Sexy. Yeah. No, you, you, you should tune in just for the mu- just for the music alone. It's mostly me making porno music. Music sounds. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you guys, your picks. Go for it, Becky. Go for it. I'm gonna have to go with Guild Wars because Guild Wars. Because I spent all day playing it. Um, if you haven't checked it out in a few years, um, they've made a lot of cool improvements, and it's actually a pretty darn fun solo game now. Once you get going and get your heroes built up with a good uh, build, I'm gonna shamelessly promote myself here. Uh, my pick of the week is the Way of the Game podcast. Uh, this week we will be dropping episode, let's see, 74, I believe, which should cover what we've been playing recently since we've had uh, a couple episodes where we've done nothing but discuss headlines. So please turn in so you can listen to uh, Jonathan, Alex, and I talk about uh, games and all sorts of random stuff that tends to come up. Okay, before we launch into the main topic, one bit of business. We're going to have a new contest. You're going to have to uh, start following my Twitter feed at SBO Podcast. And there's going to be a little RT message. And if you are to, whoever, whoever retweets it will be entered in a draw to win $10. Yes, I've, I've taken my prize budget for this quarter and folded in the prize budget from last quarter, which nobody won because you're all lame. And, yeah, I'll probably do the same thing when no one does it again. So, this could be an interesting little game where we see how big I'm willing to let this pot grow. (laughs) Alright, but into our main topic, which is us cussing out Japanese role-playing games. There's a lot of things that I don't like about it. There's a lot of things to be said that this whole thing could improve upon. But I'm just going to start out by playing, you know, being nice and saying... There are some good JRPGs out there. We'll probably mention a few of them as we go along, but I just want to say the Shin Megami Tensei franchise, really solid, neat ideas, a lot of fun gameplay, 
hard as hell, but usually worth the time. And does anyone else have any nice things to say right now? Well, I'll probably be going against the grain occasionally during the actual podcast, but I'm a huge fan of the Sukadin series, which um, has a nice broad range of characters in it, um, and tends to be pretty fun to play because of that. I've had very little experience with the Suikoden uh, series, Becky. I, I have three. I played three for a while. I lost interest, which is kind of the trend for me in, in terms of RPGs in general, but JRPGs tend to be the focus of this problem. That, that, that being said, we'll get into that a little later I, by the sound of it, but the good things I have to say is that there are some, some titles that were produced in the 90s, by Square Enix that were fantastic. They were well done. Most of them were in the Final Fantasy series, but there were some entries um, under some other titles that uh, that were fantastic, mostly done by Square Enix. Uh, I guess a couple of titles for the NES some people have very fond memories of. Uh, a friend of mine cites Dragon Warrior as one of the, uh, the games of his childhood. But for me, the, the one game, the the... The one, I guess, the two that I'll bring. Uh, three. I'll, I'll do three. I'll leave it at three. <laughs> uh, JRPGs that I'll really put up on a pedestal are are all Square Enix titles, but they're all very different in nature. Uh, you have Final Fantasy VI, which I believe is the pinnacle of the series so far, uh, at least in the numbered entries. You have Final Fantasy Tactics, which stands alone and by itself in a genre. Uh, that uh, there aren't a lot of entries in, but is but is the best of it, and is a shining example of other games what to do with story. And the last uh, is Chrono Trigger, a game I hold very near and dear to my heart, and try and play through once every couple of years. Well, that's good because Square likes to release it every couple of years now. <laughs> I'm actually one of those rare gamers that's not the world's biggest fan of Chrono Trigger, so oh. that should be fun. Oh man, that we're gonna have to get into that. Chrono Trigger was a game you had to play when it came out, because going back to it, all you can see is you you can see that it's quality, but you've seen everything that's come since and has built upon it, so it's never quite the same. Yes, which which leads to I'm I'm a little bit unusual in JRPG fans, I think, in that I was a PC exclusive gamer until about um, the early 2000s. So I don't have the nostalgia factor of the 90s um, console games to, to trade in on, although I've played a fair number of them by this point. Well, I'm actually pretty much in the same boat as you, Becky, so yeah. That, that this is where a lot of my ire tends to come from. But I think there is sort of an elephant in the room in, with the Final Fantasy series. And oh, yeah. I'm going to say it. Final Fantasy is both simultaneously the last good one and the first bad one of the franchise, I think. It's the tipping point where all these things come together, and it's got a lot of the things you like from the earlier games done really well, and then you have all this new stuff creeping in, and all this new stuff seems to be just becoming a bigger, bigger part of the franchise, and that's what's killing it for me. What, now, elaborate on that. What do you mean the stuff that's that's coming in and things that are getting bigger and bigger? What do you mean by like, that? Um, at this point, I think the character design is entirely uh, a joke at this point. Like, it's seeing how much they can outdo themselves in terms of ridiculous. 
I think the plot lines are just getting needlessly convoluted. I think setting design is just going gonzo for no reason. Like, I think there's a lot of stuff that's just being done for the visual, the sake of the visuals. And I think that uh, the gameplay, like the battle systems that they're building, are Baroque and Byzantine. They're neat. They, they present a lot of outward complexity, except when you actually, and then you will look at it, and it's, you know, you'll find holes in it so big you'll just walk through the game doing one thing over and over. See, uh, I've got... I'm, I'm half with you and half against you on the combat mechanics. The, the most recent Final Fantasy that I actually made it through was 13. And the last one, when my RPG burnout started, was with Final Fantasy 9 in about 2000. And, or 2001, whenever it came out. And I never finished that. I didn't finish that one. I hadn't, hadn't finished another one, a new one anyway, until 13. And I think 13's combat system fixed part of the problem. And part of the problem was the, the tedium of grinding. And I think the fast-paced, cinematic-type nature, as repetitive as it gets in 13, was, was great. But trying to select your own sequence of moves became prohibitive in 13. It should be interesting to see <clears throat> how they managed to improve on that in 13 too, because I think they're trying to. But What I've seen off the floor at E3 is it is exact same game except quick time events in some of the bigger summoning, summon type stuff. Ew, I hate quick time events. Man. And it's not even like good quick time events, it's like mash X! <laughs> well, hey, you know what? Final Fantasy VIII had that as a feature where you could you know, hold it and select and hit one of the buttons to buff your summon in terms of percentage of damage. And then there was a p- period where you couldn't press somewhere in the middle of it, and then it would resume again. So you had to pay a lot of attention during combat. And I remember that being a feather in Final Fantasy VIII's cap, because if you were willing to commit yourself to focusing on the summon, you could get up to 250% damage. And then there was Final Fantasy XII, which had some kind of quick time system or other in its... Um big massive group attack system but i never figured out how to make it work despite reading three or four facts attempting to figure out how to make it work so i just ignored it but i have an interesting history with final fantasy series i started with eight it was the first jrpg i ever played um i have never played five through seven and i've played remakes of some of the old ones but i've played nine through 13 all the way through oh i I haven't quite finished 13 yet Oh, and I never finished 10, but I almost finished 10. But anyway, and it's always for me, it's just sort of been a middling series for me. I, it, it's fun to play, but it's not really my favorite, even among JRPGs. So I, I, I'm always amused when people go on and on and on about Final Fantasy because I'm just kind of like, yeah, it's okay. And people seem a lot more passionate about it than I am. Yeah, no, there, there's like, th- this is the other thing that I think really annoys, really sort of sets me off about Final Fantasy is entirely the fan base. Like at the like as much as I'll complain about certain aspects of certain games, at the end of the day I'll just have to sit back and say it's okay, and then I'll see the fans and it's like no I want this dead. People are being are acting this dumb in the name of this thing. It doesn't deserve to live. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, the Final Fantasy fan base is fairly unpleasable, but you can't say that we don't have our unpleasable fan bases in the Western RPG world either. 
<clears throat> Deus Ex, Bioware. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we'll have a different. We'll do a different show for my for my issues with Western RPGs. We will, <laughs> and we'll even have one where I rant about first person shooters. I'll look forward to that. So yeah. I have some great input for that topic. Yeah. The the problem that I have with with JRPGs is that they they tend to follow a very a, 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 a set of formulas and tropes that they kind of it's like they have 50 situations or tropes and they pull between 12 You must use and at least 15 of these to pass the test. Exactly. You have 12 to 17 or so and that's just an arbitrary number. There's a yeah. number of these tropes that they pull out of a hat and they decide based on a couple other choices of setting and such what type of story they're going to tell. And then they dis- then I don't know if there's a dartboard with the percentage of how much they're going to convolute the plot that they throw a dart at, but that tends to be part of it. And, well, I think and I, I think, think that's that actually a are... spinning top. If it lands one side up, it's ridiculous convoluted. Spends half the game reciting your lectures from sophomore uh, metaphysics, and then the other half is just. Plot is excessively padded with nothing but wandering through dungeons seeking out uh, elemental-based crystals. But but I don't think that's necessarily the case because some games have some tropes, but they tell an interesting story. And the example of that, as far as I got, because I didn't get through it, was Suikoden 3. Suikoden 3 has a political situation, a war that starts, and you're trying to kind of figure out at the start of the game, how the hell did this get started? Because... You're playing from three different points of view, and as far as each of the individuals you're seeing through the eyes of, what they're seeing makes sense. But you as the player having that context, things don't add up, and that and is you, really cool. You know, they, they do end up adding up by the end of the game when you find out who's actually been pulling the strings. But yeah, the Sikkanen series tends to have – it has um, – up up through the fifth game, um, with the exception of the terrible, terrible fourth game, has a really interesting world that and very complex world with a lot of politics and various dynamics. And that um, makes it particularly appealing to me because I like that kind of stuff, especially because, like, the battle system is not all that great. Um, but it's it's really the, the plot and the characters that make that series. Um, and it's definitely one that's kind of accessible to Westerners. I, I've always – this is something that I can't figure out. I learned when I was getting um, an English as a Second Language teaching certifica- certification that in general, the Japanese narrative structure is very, very different from ours. And if, you'll, if you read a, um, a Japanese essay as a Western reader, you will have a very difficult time figuring out what the actual thesis of the essay is because the narrative structure is so different. So I've always wondered – how much of certain games that seem really convoluted was just a failure of the game to be properly to be able to be properly localized for a Western audience to understand? Since I don't speak Japanese, I, I, I'm not a good person to figure this out. But that's always been one that I've sort of wondered if it's there's definitely tropes that that repeat and can get a little bit old. And Japanese gamers complain about them too, while simultaneously complaining when the games deviate too far from those tropes. I've always sort of wondered how much of the convolutedness of the games is is a cultural slash linguistic barrier rather than the game is story isn't well told in its original. 
that makes a lot of sense, actually. Well, my thing is that there's a, you hit a certain point where, you know, JRPGs have very minimal plots, and obviously as the the tech gets better, they can tell more. But e- even in, even like you look at Final Fantasy VI and Final Fantasy VII because we were we were just discussing that franchise. You know, VI had this relatively straightforward plot where you know you've got evil empire and stuffs going down and magic versus steampunk, and then seven just starts throwing these odd curveballs at you for no reason. And I can't just think it's and I don't think it's just the hardware because you could have told the same story, albeit less pretty. On a Super Nintendo, so I don't know if this point, if it's this just odd trend in game design, where did did, Ava, did Evangelion just change nerd culture in Japan that much, where you had to get weird halfway through? See, I, I don't think so. I think that they they decided okay, because figure they had done at least six games by then, because there were some Game Boy titles as well, and so yes. there'd been some writers that had kind of you know made their bones to use a cooking industry term, with with some of the Game Boy titles, perhaps, that had gotten a chance to say, okay, let's write something really interesting and different. Because up until the reason people put Final Fantasy VII on a pedestal is twofold. One, because your first Final Fantasy game that you play from start to finish tends to be the one that fans hold above all else. And I... Am an, am, am an example of this because six was the first game I played start to finish. So it really set the tone for the genre for me. Number two, seven was on a new system. It was marketed to a whole new demographic and it was a completely different type of story than any other RPG had done to date with this type of look to it. Because to my knowledge, there wasn't, besides Fallout, a, a dramatically famous RPG entry in a futuristic-type setting. I'm sure there had been Shadowrun games at some point, but to have something where you've got an established setting, you've got as good as it looked at the time, it was, it was really groundbreaking. And they did some things with the story that a lot of people are still a little confused about what happened to this day, and I, I think this goes back to what Becky was saying about Japanese narrative, because if it's spelled out for you in a paragraph by like someone in a Western state of mind, the story makes sense, but you don't get that context until later in the game. And at that point, that's how many hours of play later. And that may have happened as games got more literary storylines. Um, you know, when they when they were really simple with the simple pixels. It was pretty easy for anyone in either culture to follow because there wasn't much to follow. But as they I don't know, Mario very... gets pretty tricky in the middle. <laughs> he does. I never know. I never know what's going on in that little guy's head. <laughs> I mean, he's 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 truly uh, just this emotionally rich uh, carpenter. But he's an enigma. The story, the storybook in Super Mario Galaxy is actually pretty darn depressing. So. <laughs> <laughs> and bad dudes versus Dragon Ninja. I mean, that was an ep- a sprawling epic of dozens of characters. <laughs> <laughs> I just always think of the original Legend of Zelda when I think of the early narratives. <laughs> it's dangerous to go alone. Take this. Yeah. Take it where? <laughs> what, what am I supposed What's to dangerous? do with this? Come on. <laughs> dude, dude, okay, you gave me this because you know it's dangerous. What's dangerous? What do I look out for? And the guy says nothing. You're like, 
So now you go mute. Now you go mute. Are you kidding me? I'm getting the hell out of here. <laughs> and then you walk out of the cave, and then, oh, God, there's things with spears. And then everything wants you dead, and I'm like. Everything wants to kill you, yeah. And then it's like, old dude was right. It was dangerous to go alone. <laughs> so, uh, like, like, some of the tropes that, that they've done in future games that, that bother me are, 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 as was mentioned earlier, in the, like, before, before we started recording here, Silent protagonists, really, really. We we don't have the chops to write a character that, you, based on their experiences that you see as the player before any other characters show up, that we can't sympathize with them on the choices they make. Come on, now I buy it because Valve does silent protagonists in all of their games. Half Life and Portal all have a silent protagonist because in their mind they think it puts you into the story. Well, the the other thing that Valve does is that, you know, they 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 only see they basically tell almost all their stories through um in like inference. They like there's there's no exposition in Valve games. Exactly. People just say things and you p- put it together. Like there's way more implied story to Half Life Two than there is you know anything else. Although well, that's. A- that silent protagonist got problematic in the same way that they are in a lot of JRPGs in that when you start throwing in other characters, it gets a little bit weird when you're not saying anything, especially exactly. the, JRP- the JRPGs where like the second most, you know, the second most important character basically says everything for your character. So it's like, okay, so my dude's just whipped. All right. Yeah. Or I'm just a sock puppet, like a sock puppet, right? Yeah, Like, someone is really saying what we should do, and I'm just a dude with a sword that kind of goes around killing stuff because this guy says so. Then you're not the main character. Then you're someone's second banana, and how much fun is that? Well, we played the main plot of Oblivion where you were the second banana. Actually, no, we didn't because I have huge problems with Morrowind and Oblivion, but they aren't really JRPGs. Yeah, no. I actually played Oblivion as a JRPG. I made a cat girl who was riding on a My Little Pony, and I went around and slayed things. I never got very far in the story. <laughs> I I don't even I don't even think I, I only played the main plot once, and then every subsequent playthrough is like forty to ninety hours of oh hey what's over there. And I mean maybe I mean all the the JRPGs that that I've played have well, like Eternal Sonata is a new one. Eternal yeah. Sonata takes an interesting turn because it it focuses on a real life character and takes kind of a fictional approach to something that really happened because it focuses on Chopin in the hours before his death when he was comatose in his bed. And I and, would have and, liked that focus on Chopin had he actually been the focus and not the extremely obnoxious, terrible supporting cast. Like, they are well, they are horrible, and that's where the tropes become. Painfully, that and there's this middle people. section of the other thing about Eternal Sunlight is the middle section of the game was my sophomore metaphysics class. It just was. Well, you got farther than I did. Yeah. Same oh, here. I finished it. I, said I, I just found the I found the chick with the bow, and I'm like, oh, there's some stuff going on. Oh, actually, just, just to spoil it for you guys, you get no, to the end. No, no, don't, don't. I, I'm doing it. I'm doing no, it. You get to no. the end. And Chopin re- no. rejects the dream reality and decides to live in the real world. So then your obnoxious supporting cast has to beat up Chopin, and then he dies in real life. <laughs> That's awesome. And then there is 90 minutes 
dead serious, 90 minutes of ending cutscene, credits, and little thing, little vignette after the credits. 90 minutes. Oh, man. Which leads me into my next complaint about JRPGs. 90-minute cutscene! See, now here's the thing. I like a good cutscene because they're pretty... They, they give you character insight. And actually, that was some of the stuff about 13 that I thought was really cool. Most of those didn't was, drag on too long, though. Not some like of some them games. drag on really long. If you give me less, or like more, little ones. Yeah. Like, if you give me, like, the characters are talking, you know, da-da-da, they're talking in a little, like, you know, in-game cutscene. Like, you turn a corner, you, or you jump into an elevator. And while you're going up an elevator to the next floor of the skyscraper or whatever, you have to go talk to a guy. It, it, you know, the characters talk, and then there's a brief cutscene that you can rewatch later. That would be awesome. And in 13, they kind of gave you a, a a tool to go in and look at what's been done before. Right? Hey, what happened in this chapter? Because the game's been divided into 13 chapters, right? Oh, like, little cute blonde girl talked with saucy black man, and they discussed this, and then they went to sleep. <laughs> Thanks. Good. Now, now, okay, can I see the cinematic? They don't let you do that, but they do explain what happened. And so you can get some context when random fact, like, some dude shows up, and little blonde chick starts freaking out. You can go back and get some context on who this dude might be. Like, I'm just, there, there are some games that just get very long-winded, and it's like, you aren't telling me anything about the characters. You aren't telling me about the plot. You're just talking. <laughs> like, the, there is, like, Anton Chekhov is getting very annoyed with you. He may come after you with his gun. And a lot of the time, there's a lot of teenage angst involved, too, which oh. I'm really, I've really gotten way too old for. <laughs> I am. That exhausts me. It really does. The, I, I was... I was pretty close to saying that I've completely given up on coming-of-age stories in games, period, until I played Legend of Heroes Trials in the Sky, which is actually a really, really good coming-of-age JRPG, but most of them, it's just like, oh, come on. It's like, okay, yeah, we get it. The, yes, liner notes from a My Chemical Romance album. Can, can we go? Can we go? But yeah, <laughs> like, there, there is a lot of needless angst. Like, and Getting back to Silent Protagonists, I'd, I'd take Silent Protagonist over the inner monologues of a lot of JRPG characters. I'm thinking about that. I'm trying to weigh... I, it would depend on the situation. I can't make a blanket call on that. Because you can have a character who's had a really crappy time growing up, and there are some well-written narratives about you know a teenage character coming of age and, and kind of you know coming into their own as an adult. And they're very good and very touching, but... There are some that are just painful. <laughs> if it makes me return to remembering how obnoxious I was when I was 14, then it's just useless to me. So, like, I've, I've grown out of that now. I don't need to see someone else do it. Uh, what else is bugging me? The settings. Like, in general, like, there's a lot of JRPGs that seem to do... They, they seem to do standard Euro medieval fantasy, which bugs me. Except then they'll add this one element that changes everything, but then don't think it through to the fullest extent. Give me so an example. You, well, in the opening cutscene to Artun Leko, um, or yeah, no, uh, Atelier Verona, 
Those are two two different games. It's like, <laughs> okay, s- sorry, I just mashed them into my head. But Arton Leco, you have you know basic the, the the city looks like your basic 15th century German town, except a giant purple neon purple glowing pillar. And I'm like, if alchemists can make this, why isn't it incorporated into the rest of construction? <laughs> Like you don't like you ch- you can't just start from point A, introduce change, and then have point A remain the same. Think through your settings. Well, they can explain that with a narrative, though. Like, let's say there's this giant purple glowing pillar. Well, what makes that different? Why can't we use that type of stuff to mi- to build houses, to build walls, and things? So they explain. Okay, well, there were rare ingredients involved. There was only a couple of guys that knew how to do it. Um, there was a seasonal thing that had to line up. They can explain that in the narrative, and if they don't, then they have failed and left a hole in the storytelling. Yeah, and that that's what I'm complaining about, is that there are, are some so- storytelling holes that arise from the settings. Ancient, super-advanced civilization, all dead now. How? Oh, don't care. God. You have to fight robots, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, Just but saying. that can be that can be really cool because th- there are some games that do the ancient fallen culture, right? And there's remnants of that culture left behind that tell you something about them, and that could be a cool plot device. But if you if you do it wrong, it's like, oh man, okay, so there's rusty robots I have to fight when I'm lower level. There's less rusty robots on a medium level, and there's ones that just came out of stasis when I'm high level. Lame. You've got to yeah. have. We have higher standards now. One of the things we keep saying on the way of the game in terms of video games is that good games don't cut it anymore. As as I get older and my spare time is distributed amongst the number of hobbies that I like to do, I don't have time to waste playing a game that's only good. It has to be great or downright excellent to warrant my time. And that means storytellers have got to step it up. They've got to innovate. They've got to try telling a story that that challenges some things, that makes the player think, or that does things that haven't been done before in the medium. Well, I certainly prefer that. I do think there's still room for the sort of medium good game for the kinds of games you want to play when you just want to turn your brain off. But you got to make sure that you're not padding them with, like, ridiculous grinding to make sure that people are spending their requisite 40 hours on the RPG. Like, just own it. Make a, you know, cute, fun game that's, you know, maybe 20 hours long and is mostly, you know, just you're playing through the game. The grind is another thing I just don't have time for. I don't have time to sit, because I can't sit down and play for four hours at a time anymore. When I get off for work, I got to exercise, and then I and then I'm going to sit down and play for probably an hour and a half. Do I really want to sit there and just run around the circle and fight monsters for an hour and a half for a week? No, because by the time I actually get to my Friday and I have some time to sit down and go, okay, am I high enough level to go and actually fight the giant lizard snake? And, and it's just I, I get there, and if I get smashed again. I'm going to go, okay, great, another week before I can do this. And eventually I'm just going to lose scope of what I was doing beforehand, and I'm just tired of running around in circles fighting crap so I can actually move the narrative forward. Although that said, I I haven't played too many JRPGs that have had a really bad grind lately. They've gotten better at 
um, making it so that, you know, if you don't take tons of shortcuts, you'll probably be approximately the right level to take on most of the stuff in the game. There are some games that do that scaling well and others that do not. And so like it's kind I've, of a mixed bag. The, well, this is what I've been finding in JRPGs lately is that, like, individual, like, fights against goons go pretty fast. Like, you'll, you'll be going through those fast so it doesn't even feel like a grind. It's just, like, three turns, everything's done. And then you hit all the boss fights, and those are a long-involved affair. Yeah, in some of the games, that's that's certainly some, true. Some of them can. Like, I buy that. Like, I've I've been seeing that, and I'm just not liking the disparity where, okay, if your game's going to be hard, you can just make it hard across the board. And, you know, I'll just have to deal with that, and, you know, I can take it or leave it. And here I've got this weird sort of zigzagging difficulty curve where I'll spend most of my time, you know, enjoying myself, you know, mashing my way through a bunch of dudes. And then I'll hit a boss fight that takes me an hour to beat. Well, there is definitely a difference, um, as she said, between long and hard. Um, Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to make a game where all the fights are challenging, just don't make as many fights. But the developers have a hard time with that one, I think. And, like, there are some even more basic complaints I have that are just part and parcel of the genre and are never going to change. Like, I'm like, yes, I'm going to be, like, it bugs me that I'm stuck with a linear linear plot that I have no effect on. Like, there, there are a lot of games... There are a lot of JRPGs I just call role-watching games. But wh- how, is that I can ex- any, how is that any different from any other video game, though? Like, like I don't know. Like, I, come, I, came out of, I come out of tabletops, and I've come through, you know, the Bioware titles. Or I'm expecting at least a little. And in some games, it just bugs me, especially when there's, like, these really contrived moments where you're like, you know... It's like, if I had any say in the matter, I, this would go so much faster and easier, and it doesn't. It just doesn't. But at the same time, though, I mean, of the Bioware titles, I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't care if you pick Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale, Mass Effect, Dragon Age, whatever you want to pick. When you start out in Baldur's Gate, you pretty much know how it's going to end. You may not know exactly how you're going to get there or what choices you have along the way, but you know you're going to have to fight a big bad that killed your dad. When you yeah. start playing Mass Effect, you know the big-ass creepy ship you see at the start probably going to come back later. Yeah. When you and play I, Dragon I, Age, you know it's going to be the Archdemon. I, I understand coming from the tabletop background because that's kind of where I started out too, but when you go into a game like that, there is a story you have to go through and there are choices, but... How is it that? How do you think that that trope can never change in terms of Japanese games? I just don't see any. I don't see enough games tending towards that direction now. I I don't mind. Like I just think of JRPGs as not like the same kind of role playing games that we get in the West. They're basically interactive fiction with fights, and and I'm okay with that. Like I, it doesn't bother me when the plot's not stupid. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like, if the plot is stupid, I get more annoyed that I didn't have a say in this. Like, when the plot gets dumb, I'm like, I could fix this. Especially when your main character is a total idiot. Yeah. <laughs> That's, which is one but, of those but, things that definitely bugs me in some JRPGs. And he's like, oh, I never saw that coming. It's like, oh, come on. But at the same time, though, if you as... There has to be a separation between what the player knows... And what the character knows. And this comes directly from the tabletop world, right? Yeah. 
just because I've seen the cutscene where I know the dude with the beard is going to betray me. I know it. Yeah. I know it's coming. But from the character's point of view, he doesn't know that. Oh, that's and fine. Yet, but some of the games just go way too far with it, and there's stuff that the character should have figured out from what he, has, he or she has seen, but they're still like, oh, no, tell me how basic, like, the world basically works. And the thing is, maybe that's a challenge to the writers, how the writers need to put hints in that the character can put together, but at the same time, how do you do that without getting without needless exposition? Because think of it like a Sherlock Holmes uh, novel. You know, there are all these things that happen, right, that no one can explain, but Sherlock's picking up clues and stuff, and at the end, he explains it all, Mm -hmm. right? He pieces it all together. How do you do that over the course of, let's say you have three interactions with Beardface McVillain Man, who's going to betray you. You you notice in the first conversation he lets something slip that he shouldn't know. In the second conversation, he's hurt and he should be just fine. And in the third conversation, he has an item on – or he asks for an item that you have that there's no way he can know you have. And that item also causes the apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. Now, the thing is, if you as the player don't pick up pick that up and then the main character figures it out, people are either going to, number one – Think like you're thinking, Becky. Awesome. A smart protagonist that sees through the crap, that is able to piece things together. They're going to say number two, uh, and they're, and people are going to start picking holes in how this character figured that out and say it's a horribly written game. Or three, the player's just going to go, Duh, and not really understand what the hell's going on. I have very little patience with player three, but um, yeah. <laughs> actually uh, Tales of Vesperia was a pretty good example of an actual intelligent protagonist um, who, you know, stuff would happen sometimes and it would be kind of, it was, it was well done in that the player would be going, yeah, I know what's going on here. And then you find out that, yeah, the main character had a pretty good idea that it was going to happen too. And he'd done a little something to prepare for it. Whereas some of the not quite as swift or understanding characters in the party maybe needed him to explain a couple things to him and that that worked pretty well in that it was kind of refreshing that you know a lot of the jrpgs will have the other characters be explaining stuff to the main character whereas this one had the main character explaining to some of the younger players characters in the party and and i kind of liked that as a difference in that you know at least my main character is you know a little bit well vesperia was uh vesperia was an interesting case where you had you were basically playing the older, like you were really playing the senpai figure. You were playing the senpai stereotype character, mm-hmm. who would normally just be the one who wanders in, says, you know, coaches young naive protagonist boy through the first few steps of the hero's journey, and then dies horribly about two thirds of the way through. But here you have your main character, who is the world weary, you know, mercenary type who doesn't who's just in it for this one particular goal. And then all the characters around him are kind of naive, childlike. We're going to save the day! <laughs> until, the, until the elf lady comes along and he's got a buddy. But anyway. Yeah, then he's got a buddy to be like, kids. There, there's a great example of this in, in the literary world that I'm in the middle of reading right now that fits this example you guys are talking about with Tales of Vesperia perfectly, and that's The Dark Tower. Oh, yeah. the, main, the main character, Roland, in The Dark Tower, knows a lot more about the setting than he lets on. And the characters that end up joining him 
in the story are asking him questions about things that are going on. And Some Roland says it doesn't knows. matter because it's because like a lot of the times he says it doesn't matter because the world's moved on from that. Exactly. And I'm in the middle of the wastelands, which is the third book. And this is where yeah. is this a lot of this stuff becomes very clear. He says, you know, this might have been the great road. This is the road we have to follow to get to the tower. And none of this should be spoilers, just you know, so the listeners are aware. I'm not spoiling anything for you, but also the book's like 20 years old at this point. Ah, a gunslinger, but waste wastelands is is probably 80s. I think that came out. Uh, Wasteland would have been 91. 91. Okay. Yeah. So so it's so it's you know 10 10 plus years old, but. Still, I try and stay away from spoilers of good stuff, and that's definitely some good stuff. But that sounds like a perfect example of this. Why can't we have a narrative where you know you have a, a, the main character who knows what's going on, but for some reason can't get the job done by themselves, and needs you know characters to ask what's going on so that the exposition explaining the world makes sense. And I, I do think that. Um... The Japanese devs are looking at that. As I said, like I do think that the genre is definitely in, certainly in a case of um, evolve or die right now. And even Japanese critics are saying the same thing. Um, so I have seen more in the more recent games them trying to do that a little more. It's been interesting too because um, as it's been interesting to see Japanese companies try to evolve a little bit to be more appealing to Western tastes, um, <laughs> except without fully understanding exactly what that is. So you'll see, you know, instead of having oh near, yeah, near. Well, near, near was actually near was actually oh. really cool in a narrative sense, anyway, and it was really oh, different. Oh no, it wasn't. It but... was gross. <laughs> oh god, I wanted to like that game. I really did. I really did. And then they went on this non sequitur in the puzzle temple, and I was done. I was uh, I done. To, I haven't gotten that far yet. I'm in the middle of playing it, but. But yeah, the the whole um, it's a you know teenage protagonist in Japan and this dude who looks like he's been through a meat grinder in in the states. So it's like uh, it's not exactly. Although I can't blame them because it's not like we don't have games over here that have protagonists that look like that too. It's just that well, we tend to roll our eyes at those guys too. Oh, Marcus Phoenix. <laughs> But the thing is, Nier would have been great if they'd used a system similar to the way Batman Arkham Asylum works. It would have been fantastic. It would have been a great game. But it sadly wasn't. Well, and so a I lot more games would be better. A lot more games would be better if they were more like Batman Arkham Asylum. <laughs> Metroid Nier... would be better if it was Batman Arkham Asylum. Uh, that I can't really say. I haven't played a Metroid game in quite some time, so... Which, which I know uh, my co-host is probably going to slap me in the head about <laughs> next time he sees me with his gigantic hands. <laughs> oh, wait. I have not seen his hands in person yet. I really got to get down for Gen Con one year. It's that or, or whatever you can do, Gen Con or Archon, any con you can run into to Jonathan, it would be well worth your time. Yeah, it's, well, I, I, I should probably go to Gen Con for work at least once. There you go. Yeah. So I'm trying to Pretend think of some I'm other an actual things. reporter. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some other stuff in JRPGs that that bugs me. The well, we still have to talk about amnesia. Oh god, that's that's perfect. So well, amnesia is a problem in gaming in general. Yeah, but in Japan, but if, it's, if it's used well, it's awesome. Look at Bioshock. Oh, Bioshock was so good. 
and like that is an example of of the great storytelling. And I don't know who they got to shoot blackmail tweet messages of their private parts to to get these writers to work for the RPG companies, but somebody's got to do something. I, I can tell you exactly how to get writers to work for an RPG company. You wow. have to pay them. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you offer a serious fantasy science fiction folklore novelist serious money to write for your game, they will. But I just don't think companies are offering competitive salaries. Or they're just thinking, oh, I can write. I like to tell stories. I've been playing games since I was 10. I can write a story. And and they try to do it themselves. And Well, yeah. and sometimes they'll give a, an author a nice fat paycheck, and they give that paycheck to R.A. Salvatore. And, well, Demon, or, well, yeah, it was Forgotten Realms Demon Sto- Stone. That was lame. Well, I mean, not all authors are going to be good at writing for games either, because it is it's a, a different, different thing. But some some are are good. Now, I, I can't I can't actually speak to the JRPG world in, in terms of this because I don't know who's writing for their games. Well, it seems in a lot of cases it's like some the game director and a team of people who are also involved in a few other positions who seem to be writing these games. Mm-hmm. So maybe similar to us. Yeah. So. These are guys who've come up through, you know, these guys are level designers who are now getting a chance to run a game and are now trying to write. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe they've got some great ideas, but that's where you need to have a good project manager that that can point these guys and say, do you have it? Do you have some training in writing? Well, no. Okay, move over. We want you to be a creative consultant on this. We do. We want your input because, you know, what types of things you can program, right? You know what you can make work. And that needs to be used to temper what the artist writes down so that there are the cinematic scenes, you know, there's there's the stuff there's the huge fights. You need to have everyone getting together and kind of putting their two cents in. Every you know, programming, marketing, writing, the management side. So you can do something in a manageable amount of time because how how long was it between Final Fantasy twelve and Final Fantasy thirteen? I saw. Years. I no, I don't think it was that long because I remember playing twelve when I was in two thousand seven, and then I didn't play thirteen until the spring of two thousand ten. Three year turnaround cycle, really, really square. Come on. Well, it was longer than that because thirteen was in development for like five years, I think. But I mean, that's definitely. Some of the Japanese companies are having some major product or um, major project development problems, and I'm not quite sure where that's coming from. But well, I think part of it had to do with the tsunami and some nuke plants. But well, there's, that's well, not there's a the current problem, <laughs> but that doesn't explain why you know some titles are taking four or five years. And why Final Fantasy versus Thirteen is never ever coming out? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and you know I I understand why. These, these companies go to a different system, to a different genre, to a different setting with every new entry. I understand they, they think that they have told the story in there. They don't want to make people feel that the setting is worn out. And they went back to the well for the first time with Final Fantasy X-2. And they're doing it again with thirteen. And, I and think, again. Uh, and again. Yeah. We're, we're getting three thirteen spinoffs, aren't exactly. we? Exactly. Or is well, it just... The other two were going to have very little to do with <laughs> the main with that, series ones. Yeah. 
And so I, I just wonder, okay, why don't they pick? Because 14's already out, and it's kind of a medieval look to it, right? They went well, back. it's also to, an MMO. It's also an MMO, but they went back to the medieval thing. With 15, why don't they go back to that, to the fantasy base, right? Because I think it would be cool if you set the groundwork for like a Final Fantasy IV type setting, right, where you have – where you have except no airships. So even Final Fantasy I, you have their monsters. One had airships. There are towns. Well, they don't show up till later. In four, yeah. you know there are airships right off the bat. But like there's swords, there's shields, and then all of a sudden like there's a jet, and it goes by, and people are like, "What the hell was that?" And you have, and it crashes, and you have to go over and find out what's going on. You set up the expectations of your audience. You know, hey, there's wood burning fireplaces. There's a little bit of magic, uh, but you have to train to to do it. You know, they set up the tropes, and then they break them with something, and then it's how w- w- what's happening, and then you just you you ask questions and chase the series of questions to the natural conclusion. Because you look at 13, 13 starts out on a subway. Okay, as soon as I know there's a subway, there's certain things that I assume about the setting. There's electricity, there's advanced metallurgy, there's there's all these things about the, the setting that I know. There are guns, there's gunpowder, and... and they what you did st- not assume was that Shiva was a motorcycle. <laughs> I did not... I, I did not foresee lesbian motorcycle. I didn't no. see that coming. Which, there's... <laughs> I, I didn't see that, but but at the same time, like th- they set you up with all these expectations. Then where do you go from there? Robots. Except they give you robots in the first scene too. They do. I don't know. That so doesn't they... bother me so much. It's, um, although I I suspect they may go back to a slightly different setting for another Final Fantasy game. I mean, they did do it with nine. They went back to a more medieval type setting. So they do do that every few years. To a point. And- to a point, they did, but I guess it, it, yeah, you're right. It was more so Becky with with nine than it was with eight. Well, specifically, it, nine was specifically supposed to do that. Yeah, that was them being rolling old school for a game. <laughs> yep, and they did, and it was very much like the earlier Final Fantasies, like one and one, because two was weird. <laughs> yeah. Seriously weird. Two was weird, but you you talk about them reinventing the setting, and I'm I. I see a lot of JRPGs where they completely start from scratch on the game design and they don't and they don't seem to be building on other people's ideas or things that went wrong. So there are some games where I have complaints about them that came out fairly games that came out fairly recently where I have complaints about this little hole in like how oh you don't like if you earn XP beyond the level it doesn't roll over. Mhm. That's lame. And I've complained about games from that that are 20 years old now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's that's what I'm like, curious and, about. And people, and people complain about how first-person shooters all seem to just steal ideas from each other, so we have this uniform mass that... This uniform mass. But that uniform mass is always developing, whereas JRPGs seem to be, in a lot of cases, stuck in one point. Like, Final Fantasy Tactics came out, and... Now there are very few tactical RPGs that have sort of gone beyond that in terms of scope or design ideas. I, I, yeah, I've been wondering what, what the heck is going on in Japan with that, um, because there are and, – and even just not even looking to other companies or other um, developers or Western developers for how to program this shit. Like <laughs> they're talking about Final Fantasy versus 13 and how they're – 
putting in this event system so that, you know, encounters may just happen without them being specifically planned to happen at a particular location. And like, it's taking us a really long time to program this. I'm like, well, we've been doing that in the West for quite a while now. You know, maybe, maybe you guys could send over an exchange student or something. <laughs> you know, it's like they're, they're taking a lot of com- the companies seem to be like, okay, we're going to do this different idea and then not even looking at, you know, what everyone else in the industry is doing and how that they could do it. They're just doing it from scratch. I think it may not even take just loaning a programmer or two. I think what we might end up running into is, okay, look at these firms that these Japanese companies or at least Japanese-based companies that do JRPGs. And you look at Square. And I know we keep coming back to Square and a lot of people but they're, are probably... they're the big guys. They are they're the, the big, big guys. guys and they're the, ga- they're the guys that everyone knows here. Exactly. So I don't feel bad about using them as the touchstone. And so they posted a huge loss for the last fiscal year. That doesn't need to happen very many more times before one of the large companies in the state starts to smell blood in the water and starts, you know, you know, talking it over in their in their upper echelons about what do we do if we buy Square Enix? Because I don't know about you, but I think if the guys and I'm not sure how the owner, like the management tree goes, like what company owns the company that owns the company that Ken Levine works for if you give Ken Levine the Final Fantasy property and let and just say right that would be amazing I think what he would be able to tell given time assuming he was interested would revolutionize the industry because he already did it with Bioshock yeah but you wouldn't need the Final Fantasy property to do that like Honestly, I think it only has value to Square because there's not that much cohesive that makes a Final Fantasy game anymore anyway. But at the same time, though, obviously they don't have the writers to do it, right? Because if they did, they would have written something by now. They would have innovated. They would have tried to do something like the two gentlemen that write Assassin's Creed, the the guy that wrote Braid. You know, Braid, and Braid's a little bit out there in terms of story and and. and once again, yeah. a metaphysics, Scott. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, find, I find it unbearably pretentious, personally. It, it is pretty pretentious, but it's, it's that kind of innovation in mechanics and in storytelling that needs to happen to the JRPG. Because you look at some of the RPGs that American companies have done. You look at BioWare as the big one, right? And, and, and what they've done. They are spicing other genres with the RPG like flavor kit. Right, they're using the idea of experience levels, um, conversations, uh, conversation, auxiliary abilities, uh, decisions affecting stuff further down the road, and they're making titles that people are buying, people are playing, and people are clamoring for more. But that's happening in Japan as well, um, just not necessarily with Square Enix. But a lot of other companies are are also adding different game elements to the RPG. So I wouldn't say that that's necessarily something that needs to happen to JRPGs. I do think some of the big companies in Japan just need some fresh blood. And and this is what I know Japanese critics have said as well. Um, Some of the ones that have been hard on the JRPG genre is that, you know, we've got Nomura and his buddies doing Square Enix games over and over and over again. And and I think the well is dry for some of these guys. So it's time to move over and let some new people design some games how maybe they could even get a woman in there that would be something now if they're like yeah they hired like three (laughs) brand new lead writers and said you three get to design this game you have to work together 
Anything that you need help with, we will help you with. We will not stifle your creative process. We will just help you through the steps of how you get this story from the three of you writing crap on a whiteboard to a complete storyboard, right? We will help you with these steps, but will not impact your creative process at all. I wonder what they would come up with. I don't know either. I think it's definitely worth the investment at this point. Uh Uh-huh. Well, what's interesting about Square is that they're also sort of stepping up and becoming a publisher, and they're working with more and more Western developers. And I don't or know buying if that's them. T- or just buying them. And I don't know if that's just a money side thing or if talent and ideas are going to start filtering across. Well, um, I've interviewed the uh, Deus Ex Human Revolution guys a couple times now, and um, they definitely have said that um, the, the folks that have come to visit them from Square Enix have, A, been really interested in their ideas, and B, have been really respectful of their development process. So I think there's definitely interest in in terms of um, Square Enix and other Japanese developers of learning from um, the Western developers that are successful right now. Maybe it's, just, it's time think, to go in and eat the sacred cows. Yeah. I, I think, I think there's definitely, you know, cultural barriers and there's definitely perception. There's still a perception amongst Japanese developers and the Japanese publisher uh, public that Western developed games are crap. So that's one yeah. of those barriers that they've got to overcome. And well, you know, we have the same barrier over here. Sorry. Well, we have. Well, there's a certain barrier to that over here. Oh yeah. There's the, there's, there's definitely a belief that Japanese games are junk or that Japanese games are better. Mm-hmm. From certain fan base, from certain certainly people in the fan base, and I don't like. I and I actually don't think anyone in the development world is actually all that dismissive of Japan and what they do. No, I think that's that's a difference between us and them because there's definitely an opinion in the Japanese development world that Western games are crap. But but you know, there's there's certain processes that that companies are based upon with with cultural norms, right? And obviously, the culture of Japan is very different from the culture of the states and Canada and Britain. So, you know, Poland and wherever else these games are coming from. Yeah, like two K. Two K's got a two K has development centers everywhere. When did they get so many like units? It's out of control. I think, I think we we should. I think we have to double check how big these units are because these these could just be twelve man teams that they're just pulling out of like you know little indie game circles. Hey, that worked extremely well for Valve with Portal. It 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 did work extremely well for Valve. Although that's one of those um, you know lightning strikes in different places at different times, and it's hard to be sure about it. That's yeah. very true. But yeah, amnesia. It sucks. <laughs> it's a terrible point. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what, what the, the point we started on that. That's ironic that amne- because we forgot what we were talking about. But yes, amnesia is a terrible plot device and is often used poorly and is, yeah. Yeah, unless you're, unless you're really, really good, don't use the freaking amnesia. Well, especially if you're only using the amnesia for an excuse to do exposition. Yes. That's uh, and and I th- part of the I think part of the over exposition and the stuff that feels condescending to us is partially a cultural thing. Um, at least from what I've read, that um, Japanese gamers seem to prefer being led more than Western gamers do. Although some Western gamers are also like, oh, if you don't tell me exactly what to do, I'm not going to read the manual. But that's that's different. That, I'm talking that, a lot that's this game. The- yeah. Um, versus game elements, we're more used to having to figure out some stuff. 
um, and are more interested, in, especially older Western gamers. The younger ones, I think, are more tolerant of that stuff. But Oh, this is one thing I wanted to talk about, and this is something that bugs me, and I have a ranting about it, is the character portrait dialogue thing that games do now. Like, I don't know when this started. Probably, probably in the PlayStation 2 era, probably on Game Boy Advance or something, where you just, instead of having a full cutscene, or even, you know, like, 2D animation, you just have the dialogue scroll across the bottom with the characters showing still images of their emotes. Well, that's and kind of a natural is... outgrowth from manga, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I actually well, like that, because it helps... No, no, that's not my rant. Okay. No, that's not my rant. That's not, like, my, my rant goes one step further, is that, okay, this is obviously a step up from the early 3D sprite games where you'd have FMVs and then you'd have in-game cutscenes where, you know, Cloud only has three emote motions, throw his hands up, shake his head, and stomp his foot. And if you combine them, you can almost get what he's supposed to be feeling. But, and I also understand that this is a great money-saving tool, like, you know, still images are cheap, but why is it that you aren't reinvesting any money you saved from the animation of this to build more of it? Like, there are games where, even though you've got these still images that look nice, they've still only got three emotes. Yeah, that's pretty obnoxious. Like, that is what, that, that's basically what I'm getting at, is that you cut a corner to save money, and then you don't reinvest that money anywhere else, from the look of it. So, like... I'm okay with these still-image manga-style cutscenes, as long as the characters are more expressive for it. Like, you aren't taking advantage of this change at all. And that's like... What comes to mind for me with this is the artist who does work for RPGs, but he's the guy that... The guy that did Dragon Ball. That guy's style. Right? (laughs) Toriyama. Toriyama. Yeah, Toriyama Uh... has, like... He has happy face, angry, angry face, face super angry face. There's No, he has also a super angry face. And so it's like there's only – you can immediately tell it's him that did character design, right, with characters. And there's only a couple, like, things that he does. So I buy your, your point on this. Why can't we have – you know, let's say the main character's got – like, let's say you've got the, 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 the trope angsty character who hides one of his eyes under his hair. Yeah. You, you get the, you know, he's his normal, like, oh, I'm an emo kid face. Then yeah. you've got, I'm angry. I've got a, an eyebrow raised. You know, one, this is a question. I've got both eyebrows raised because I'm genuinely interested. Why don't you make, like, 15 of these? They've done this with sprites before where you give every sprite, like, a bunch of different emotes. But it's stills. Like you're saying, why don't they reinvest the cash that they save from rendering everything full 3D into a lot of different facial expressions? I buy that. That's a very, very good complaint. And I'm not asking for 15 or, like, even, let, let, let's even say, like, just, like, eight different emo- – an, an emotional range of eight for, your, for every character. I'm not asking it for it for every character. I'm asking it for the ones that I have to stare at in every goddamn cutscene. <laughs> Like, uh, your main I character should... I bought 15. 15. The Tales series does that. You can And, and there's, there's proof people have put together all the faces. Yeah. Which is good, because there's a <laughs> lot of those in the Tales series. Well, yeah. And even Phoenix... Like, Phoenix Wright is usually pretty limited, but the, the range they get out of them is usually pretty good. Like, if you, especially if you go look at the fan videos based on Phoenix Wright, like the Phoenix Wrong music videos, <laughs> they, they do a good job with, 
the the limited animation range that those characters had. But yeah, I mean, Toriyama's kind of a special case. I was in Future Shop the other day because I'm Canadian, eh? And, yeah. and we, we were looking at the uh, anime section, and it was kind of funny. Oh, that one the... lonely shelf that oh, it's like a bunch of singles from eight years ago no one's bought, and then the newest box sets of Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, well, they actually had some other more modern... And this this one had a particularly comprehensive um, anime section. I think it was two shelves. But it was funny because they had sort of the modern <laughs> Japanese anime and some modern, you know, Western animation um, in the anime style sort of near each other. And then they had, like... He-Man, Masters of the Universe, and the latest versions of Naruto next to each other, and they really looked like they belonged together. So... <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was pretty great. I was like, yeah, Toriyama was kind of stuck about 30 years ago. Yeah, like once, like start, like Toriyama went from rounded faces to s- rounded faces and bodies to the squarish ones. About the time the anime switches from ball to Z, and then he just stuck with that. <laughs> Yeah, like even if you look at his work on the Dragon Quest art, it's all the same. Yeah. I love the monster designs in the Dragon Quest games, but I really wish they'd get someone else to do the human characters. That's very true. Or even just bring in two guys. Like, like it almost, it'd almost be interesting to see um, one person do origi- the original an original set of character designs and then have Toriyama interpret them, or the other way around. Like, the way you see that with, um, uh, more so in mech designs and different things, where you'll see someone do an original pass, and then you'll see someone do, like, a, an improved, or a slightly different redesign. Well, they, they they do that in Final Fantasy a lot, too. Like, Amano yeah. will interpret oh, yeah, something, the, or be interpreted by someone else a lot. Yeah, well, there's, now, there's been a lot of people interpreting Amano lately, but, uh, the, I, I did remember seeing a bunch of art of Amano doing all the protagonists from the game since he stopped doing mm-hmm. the art for it. And it looked neat. Amano has terrible color sense, though, I find. <laughs> what like, is his I full love his... name? Yoshitaka, Yoshitaka Amano. Y- Yoshitaka, okay. Because, like, I love some of the art that he's done. His visual style is great, but you're right. His use of color, there's something going on there that is, is rough. <laughs> like, if you read the Vampire Hunter D novels, he does the illustrations for those, and it's oh, black yeah. and white, all in inks, and it's, like, amazing. And then you watch the first Vampire Hunter D movie, yeah, it it does not look. That'll happen though. Like that'll happen know. though. He's he's got some great art, but yeah, his color sense. He needs someone else to ink for him. <laughs> yeah, he he needs a colorist. Or depending on your interpretation, trace. <laughs> oh, uh, are we are we gonna do the chasing Amy rant? No, no, I've I've. It's that's actually one of my favorite. Uh, one of my favorite ones, so of of the View Askew verse, it's my favorite movie. I, I can't. I actually kind of think Clerks Two is my favorite now, but that's the even I admit that's a little weird. <laughs> that I like that one best. And Kevin Smith, like the JRPG, has a tendency to overuse tropes. There, I brought it back oh, yeah. on subject. Oh, oh, Look bring it all that. around. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, well done. That that's a that that's an eight point two from the French judge right there. <laughs> that's only because I bribed them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, do we have any f- other thoughts before we close this out? I'm good. I'm tapped out. Well, I would do my rant on 
female Japanese characters, but that's accompanied by my rant on female Western characters, and I'll leave that for another show. And in fact, I think we already did that show for you. So, yeah, we did that show. So I, I can go back that for that show. <laughs> Push the back catalog. We also did a Dark Tower episode. <laughs> oh man, love me some Dark Tower. Yeah, but yeah, I mean. Overall, I, I'm fairly optimistic, um, actually, about the future of the JRPG because I do think that there's new talent coming up in Japan, and I do think that the established companies recognize that that there's stuff that needs to be done to innovate. Um, I don't know if it's going to come from Square, though. So if you're the kind of person who won't accept a good future for JRPGs unless Square Enix is at the helm of it, it may not be the best time for you. But I think a lot of other companies are starting to come in um, and pick up the slack. A lot of that you will find on portable devices, though, because that's what's selling in Japan right now. So I think wow. part of part of the problem we do have in the West right now is people saying there aren't any good JRPGs this generation because they want one on their PS3, and they're just not going to get very many on their home consoles because it's just not financially viable in Japan right now. Yep. That I buy. Yeah, that I buy. But not a PSP. <laughs> nope. Or a PSP Vita, by the way. Uh, I think that has, like, that. that's definitely, uh, I see that, and it's like, that's Sony doing way too much stuff with one device again. See, I, I have a PSP. But I think the price point that they have on it is great, considering that I was definitely thinking they'd go to, they'd, they'd pro, like, I, when I first heard of what, what they were doing, I would not have been surprised if they said $400 for it. See, I got a PSP instead of a PS3, and I think it was pretty good as someone who likes RPGs a lot, because it's definitely yeah. a better RPG device. Yeah. All right, and with all that, good night. Uh, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Used under a license. Check out our website at SBO. Check us out on Twitter at SBO Podcast or our Facebook page at I Thought They Smell Bad on the Outside. Or kick me an email at SBO Podcast at gmail.com.